0: Last week we started looking at the first part of our mission statement as a church, which is rooted in Christ, and today we're going to start looking at the second portion of our mission statement, which is planted in family, and we're taking this month just to explore these things and um, understand a little bit more deeply what we mean. And so I've got some slides prepared that will come up as our chat, and hopefully I can stick more or less to what I have on the slides, (laughs) all right? But part of the dream that we have for this church community is that we'd continue to grow in every way and become strong, healthy, and mature, and that this church really would become a base that resources other churches, that plants other churches, and uh, that ultimately that we'd both preach the gospel and demonstrate the kingdom to the community. That's really what our, our ongoing dream is. And so today I'd like to speak to you about why I believe in church membership, and why becoming a partner in a local church is really vital for our health as individuals and our growth as disciples of Jesus. And I want to use family language because it really is, church is a family business. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not an organization in the classic sense of what organization means. It is an organization, but it is both an organization and a family. And so I want to try and answer three questions this morning if I can. The first is, what is church or what is a church? church? The second question is, why is church at all important? Why why, why should we even um, consider church, local church at, at all? And then thirdly, I want to start looking at why should we become members of a local church? And I'll finish answering that question next week. But the first thing I want to say is simply this, that the word church is uniquely Christian. I don't know if you're aware of that. It's a uniquely Christian word. Uh, You don't speak of Buddhist churches or um, Jewish churches. You speak of a Buddhist temple. You speak of a Jewish synagogue. Church is primarily a a very Christian word. It doesn't mean a building either. It's never meant a building. For the first 300 years of church history, uh, Christians didn't have any buildings to meet in. They met in homes. They met in open spaces. They met wherever they could get together. And so from the birth of the church in the book of Acts, uh, uh, church has always meant a loving community, a covenant community, a caring community that loves Jesus and love each other. So when we use, I use the word church, that is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a loving, covenantal community that loves God, loves Jesus with all their hearts, and loves each other. The building that we have is a great blessing, but the primary thing about being a church is being a community that loves God and loves each other. And uh, throughout the New Testament, uh, the church is described with various words, such as household, temple, and body, and it refers to exactly what I'm speaking about, a family that collects in a given geography and celebrates Jesus together. Uh, Last week, I looked at one passage out of Ephesians, which does talk about the church in a universal sense, that we are connected to the church throughout history, throughout eternity and uh, part of the privilege that we have in in being members of God's church uh, throughout the ages. But the majority, the vast majority of scriptures in the New Testament that speak and use the word church are referring to a living, loving collection of people that are committed to Christ and committed to each other. The church also, interestingly, uh, we know from 1 Corinthians 5, is a body from which you can be excluded uh, and i don't know if you've ever thought about that the, the, the we're not f- so good at church discipline these days but the church in the early church you could be excluded from the body for particular reasons and we'll look at that in the in the works in the, the weeks that lie ahead so second question then that's just a definition of what i want to say church is secondly why is church important why should we think about it in a in a way that honors god and honors other people well one of the promises God gave us as a church when we birthed this church is that He would set the lonely in families, and uh, that's a brilliant value. That's a wonderful value. It's a good thing. And there's this wonderful assurance from God's heart that He really does want to include all people. His heart, His desire is that all people would come to acknowledge Him and be saved, and uh, that's really what that promise speaks about. Unfortunately, we live in a world that is cynical, negative, and suspicious, especially around trust. Especially around commitment, and there seems to be a phobia in our communities that if we commit to something, even if it's good, there's something that we miss out on because there's something better just around the corner. So if we commit, if we if we commit to one thing, we're going to miss out on something that is better. And so there's this kind of attitude in our society of keeping your options open, and that's views expressed very much in how people look towards marriage in in the age in which we live. It's a real issue. Uh, that people don't want to commit in terms of marriage to somebody else. And it's a real issue that churches face today as well. Um, And so many Christians won't commit to a local church because they feel like they're keeping their options open and that something better might be around the corner. So the question is, how did we end up with this kind of attitude in our community, in our society? And so I'd like to look very briefly, and these are only little praises. I can't go into detail with this, but I want to look at two things with you this morning. To undergird what I want to say about belonging to church, and uh, they describe two periods of recent church history—recent uh, uh, history, not church history—and there are two phrases: the baby boomers and the millennial generation. And uh, I'm going to try and describe what's happened over the last 60, 70 years in the world to bring us to the place that we are right now. The first, the first generation I want to speak to you is called the, the baby boomers, and um, I want to look at some values that characterize each of these periods from a cultural perspective. Not so that we can make judgments, but that we can better understand each other and understand how we can best communicate into the generation which we are living. And really is about understanding our culture so that we can best communicate the gospel of Jesus into the generation that we are now and the generation coming after us. So the baby boomers... Uh, describes the, the group of people born directly after the second world war um, approximately between 1946 to 1964 anyone here born between can i see the hands quickly okay so there's a good smattering of us all right i fall on 1964 just on the cusp of the baby boomers and um After the Second World War, I don't know if it's nature or just the desire of people after the tragedy of the Second World War, there were a vast amount of young, of babies born directly after the Second World War. And this generation of people called the baby boomers have become the wealthiest, most active, most physically fit generation that has ever come uh, really into being. Um... They were the first generation that grew up expecting that the world would improve over time. Uh, The only other time I can think of it is the late 18th century, where after the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, everyone said the world is just going to be paradise, and then the First World War hit, and very quickly we discovered the world was not paradise. But after the Second World War, there was this great optimism amongst people that things were going to get better, and um, this generation experienced peak levels of income, They were reaping the benefit of abundant food, uh, produce, goods of every description. And unfortunately, this led to increased consumerism. And uh, often this generation of people, my generation of people, has been criticized as being overly and excessively um, consumerist, materialist, just um, hoarding wealth and getting as much of, of wealth as they could. A feature of the baby booms also is that they thought themselves quite special, a special generation, uh, different to everything that had come before. And this really came to a peak in the 1960s when large groups of young people became teenagers and young adults. And uh, they created their own specific language, their own specific music to communicate that they were different from the people that had came before. So the 60s really, remember the who sang, I'm talking about my generation. The word generation was used in the 60s for the first time to delineate between people of different ages. You're not of my generation, you are of another generation. So in the 60s, really, people from the 60s thought they were actually um, unique and special, <laughs> and they had their own, their own music, their own way of dressing, their own, way, their own language, everything to describe what was a new phenomenon in, uh, in communities. All right? So that's the baby boomers, very briefly. What about the millennials? Well, the millennials. Who are the millennials? Well, this is the next generation born between approximately 1982— to approximately 2002 who of you were born in that time a whole bunch of us as well okay so we have uh some old folks and we have some young folks it's just quite cool and what i want to what i want to and those of you that fit in between are middle age to run 70s what happened in the 70s <laughs> okay you the forgotten generation, yeah. Okay, so now the, this group of people are really, it's about 81 million young adults that are now entering university or have already become part of universities and the workforce. And so really, people, anyone under 35, roughly, okay? The, the, this group of people is going to replace my generation one day uh, when we retire. So that's interesting because whenever you see one culture or one generation do something, there's a, re- there's a reaction to that in the other culture, the other generation. And so it's very interesting to me, when there was this consumerism in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, accumulation of wealth, what do millennials value? What do they say they really want to see happen? Well, often, um, millennials are not too concerned about money. They do want to work. They do want to earn money. This is... This, this is um, right, and good, but they're much more interested in changing the world. They want to do something good. They want their lives to count for something. So why do you think there are so many young men with beards running coffee shops that source coffee from all over the world in an ethical way, and they're providing jobs for people, and they don't really care if they don't have a chain of 500 coffee shops. They are absolutely thrilled to be making a difference for one community with what they are gifted at. Why do you think that is? It's because millennials want to know they are adding value to the world. It's a very important value for them. Millennials are also, the young people are also uh, under 35s, are digital natives. They're the first generation that has grown up with the internet. They don't know what it's like not to be disconnected from each other (laughs) and from the world. They don't know what faxes are. They don't know what telephones that are uh, wired to the wall are really. It's all mobile phones. It's all apps. It's all technology. We are connected in a way that we've never been connected before. This is also true that millennials will be financially worse off than their parents because of the recent financial crises that we've had. But in another sense, depending on how you measure, I admit that, but in another sense, millennials are inheriting a world that is better off than it ever has been before. There's more access to technology, to health care, to education. There's realistically less poverty in the world than there ever has been before. And there's also a world that we've inherited, uh, our generation, this generation that is coming, inherits a world with less conflict than ever before. And are some statistics for you that I'd like to just for you to um, reflect on when I say this. In World War I, there were uh, 38 million people were casualties in World War I. Uh, both military and civilian, 17 million were killed, and 20 million people were wounded in the First World War. That was the great war to end all wars. Well, we know it didn't end all wars. World War II, 60 million people killed. 3% of the population in 1940, by the time the the Second World War finished, 3% of the population had been wiped out. Okay? Put those uh, figures together, and you can see that in the first 45 years of the last century, 98 million people were killed in conflicts. 98 million. 98 million. You add to that 9 million that were killed in the Russian Revolution by Stalin and others, and Mao Zedong in five years, four years, killed 45 million people in the Chinese Cultural Revolution. 45 million. So you add that all together, it's a staggering total. In the first 50 years of the last century, 152 million people were killed in conflicts, in wars. Doesn't that stagger you? I find that absolutely amazing. So when we say things are tough for us now, <laughs> yeah, the, certainly there are some things that are tough for us now, but I want to ask you that we would look with the perspective of history and see how we fit in to history. And what we are enjoying right now, we are incredibly privileged to be enjoying what we are enjoying right now. And I would, my heart this morning is to try and get us to engage with each other and learn to communicate Jesus into the culture that we find ourselves now, that we communicate the gospel, whether we are younger or older, we learn to communicate the truth of Jesus, which stands outside of culture and is always spoken into culture over the centuries, and we make a difference as we can, whether we are 30-something or 50-something or 60-something. Amen? Millennials are also um, in no rush to get married. It's another thing that's interesting. They often say there's too much financial insecurity to, uh, to get married, so they withhold from committing. Millennials are also more likely to support gay rights than their parents' generation. And for me, what is most interesting is that millennials strikingly are less trusting than any generation before them. Um, and so millennials hold the view, you can't trust the government, you can't trust institutions like the church or like uh, any in, in institution because there's no big picture, there's no narrative that connects us to history. So there's a sense of, of individualism, alienation, that we just need to find our own, navigate our own way as individuals in the midst of um, this, that we're not connected in any way to history. What's interesting to me is that if people believe that more. Do you notice that mental health is going the other way? When there's no sense of connection, when there's no sense of connect- being connected into society, people are getting increasingly stressed, increasingly mentally un- unhealthy. And uh, these things we need to consider. Uh, the downside of, I've skipped a little bit, but um, the downside of being raised in the most prosperous uh, generation that we've ever known, that it can also pr- to produce in, in, uh, in us an uh, attitude of entitle- entitlement. There's a lack of resilience in, in, in people to to persevere because everything has been so good for such a long time. And uh, interestingly, millennials have also been raised to believe that their generation is special. <laughs> Every generation is special, isn't it? And that millennials believe they can do anything that they dream of doing because they have the resources, the technology to do that. Well, I want to say it's best. at best that's only partly true. Why do I say that? Well, as much as I admire Usain Bolt, as much as I'd love to be like him, there are some inequalities that just are. Do you get what I'm saying? Usain Bolt is six foot five, whatever he is. He has much longer legs than I have. He has got much bigger heart capacity and lung capacity than I have. As much as I desire to be like Usain Bolt and train, if I trained every day for the next 10 years, I will never run as fast as Usain Bolt. Why? There's some inequalities that just are. And all of us have to get used to that. We have to know who we are, who God has made us to be, who God has gifted us to be. So out of a place of freedom and liberty, we can live and be ourselves and still contribute and make a difference. Are you with me? Not always longing to be something else. And so this kind of thinking often, often has uh, led us to this place of individualism. It's led us to this place of distrust of other people. And interestingly, millennials, there's a perception that with younger people that the most important thing is relationship, and I value relationship. I think relationship is a noble thing. But how we work out relationship is actually the key thing, and this is what I want to say. Often, uh, this kind of thinking, which I would describe as individualistic thinking, it ultimately becomes tribal. It ultimately becomes exclusive rather than inclusive and transformative. So what do I mean? I've already mentioned young guys with beards and, and check shirts that run coffee shops. Well, I happen to like tan shoes and, and beards and, and, and uh, check shirts. I really like that. I, I enjoy that. I think it's a wonderful thing. And coffee. I love coffee. My point is this. When that becomes exclusive, it starts to become a bad thing. When it's used to say, well, you can't be part of my thing because you don't look like me, you don't dress like me, you don't speak like me, tribalism always becomes negative. And uh, there's many, many examples of that. I grew up in Africa, and tribalism in Africa has always led to negative negative thinking. I've seen it in the church as well. They saw it in the early church. Why do I say that? Well, Paul said in Corinthians, some of you say, I follow Paul. Some of you say, I follow Apollos. Some of you say, I follow Peter. Some of you, the spiritual ones, you say, you only follow Jesus. He said that in Corinthians. And we have it in the modern church, don't we? I am of Anglicanism. I am of baptism, uh, Baptist theology. I am of Nicky Gumbel. I am of Bill Johnson. I am of, I am of, I am of. What does it do? It becomes tribal. It becomes exclusive. And so therefore, you don't enjoy all of what God is doing in the body of Christ because you are locked into your little tribe. Are you with me? So I'm not saying we mustn't do things differently and enjoy the difference. I'm just saying that individualism, we must be careful it doesn't infiltrate the church so that we become cut off from each other and not engaging with all of God's people. And so this individualism is expressed in language as well. Uh, this is how I've seen it in, in church over the last while. while all you need is you, yourself and the Holy Spirit. You can just do church. You don't, need, you don't need people. You can just do church as you walk through the woods on a Sunday morning. You don't need a community of believers. It's just you and God. It's just you and God and the Holy Spirit. You can do that in the woods. You can do that you know, playing sports. You can do that, whatever. It's just you and God. Well... I'm not sure that that is biblical Christianity. And see, for me, it's profound when the Bible speaks over and over. The language of the Bible is seldom individualistic. It talks about personal salvation, but it's always inclusive. It always builds into families. It always builds into communities. And ultimately, it builds into nations all the time. And so when we put all these things together, and I don't know, Jess, are you following me? You're doing good because I'm all over the place this morning, all right? Uh, but when we put these tendencies together, what we see is we're in a culture that is increasingly secular, it's hostile to New Testament Christianity, and it's certainly not comfortable with engaging with a local church and committing to a local church family. And so I want to challenge you, I want to encourage you, that as Christians, we need to let the Bible inform our lives and through us influence the culture rather than the other way around. Yeah? We need to be aware of what our culture holds to, but we need to be influenced and transformed. Paul, many writings in the New Testament, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You are salt, Jesus said. You are light. We should be informing culture rather than culture informing us. And I want to say to you lovingly, gently, to do that requires great courage. It requires great courage. It requires great courage as you and I stand at the school gate and try and raise our kids in a way that honors God and know at the same time that they are being influenced by all sorts of things at school that might need us to interact with them and say, well, my son, my daughter, let me speak to you about that because this is what we believe as Christians. It requires great courage. It requires It requires courage for you not to just cave in to the culture and say, oh, I can't take the stress of being disagreed with all the time, so I'd rather give in. Are you with me? That requires great courage. And I want to encourage you that greater is He that is in you than He is in the world. Jesus is on the inside of us. He's enabling us to be strong and to stand for His kingdom. And so I'm fully convinced that Belonging to a local church family is a a key step in bringing revival to communities, to evangelizing the world, and to seeing the kingdom come. And that's all for the sake of God's glory. And so I am passionately committed to the local church, that God loves His church, and ultimately it's the thing that Jesus came to birth, and He came to give His life for, and we should care ultimately about the church because Jesus cares ultimately so much about the church. And so, I've said before, let me just say again, I've managed to raise two boys who are now 20 and 18, who are millennials, who are very, very different from me, and yet they love God and they love the church. I'm not saying that in a boasting kind of way. I'm just trying to say it is possible Parents, I want to encourage you, it is possible to still raise your kids in a way that they love God and they love the church in spite of every pressure that is being forced upon them to do exactly the opposite. What do we need? We need wisdom. We need gentleness. We need grace. We need God's kindness. We need courage. We need all of those things which are possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. Can I encourage you with that? Don't give in. Don't give up. Jesus wants to see many from my sons and your sons and daughters' generation pass on the gospel to those that are coming after them, just as we are trying to pass on the gospel to those that are coming after us. And so when I think of church, I think of church with great joy. I think of the incredible friendships that I've I've, um, enjoyed over many, many years. I've seen people court each other, grow up, get married, have kids. I've been all over the world. Uh, I've walked on the Great Wall of China. I've, uh, I've, I've uh, been in a, what do you call them? I can't even remember now. In Mongolia, where you sit in those tent things, what are they called? Uh, yes, I've been on the grasslands of Mongolia. I've, I've, been, I've been all over the world. Why? Because of the Church of Christ. Not because I'm good at traveling, but because we've been preaching the gospel. We've been to Cambodia recently. I want to encourage you. The world is so big. There's so much we can do as the gospel begins to grip us on the inside and we live it out and do what we can. All right? These are great privileges. We've also had privileges of, of, of helping people through tragedy, uh, accidents, uh, ill health, murder even. I've, I've, I've uh, had, had to stand with people who've lost loved ones to murder. And all I'm trying to say is that the church, really, the local church, is messy. It's, it's uh, not. It's not cookie cutter. It's so many different people. It's so many different cultures. It's, it's messy. It's beautiful. It's, uh, it's complicated. It's, it's wonderful. This is God's bride. I, I love the church. I will always love God's church because it's so important to Him. And so, why become a member? Well, there's seven reasons I want to give you. I'm going to talk about one this morning, all right? One reason why we should become members of local churches. Very simply, it's part of authentic conversion. We've spoken about in the past, we've spoken about the three, three, the three C's of conversion. Converted to Christ, converted to the church of Christ, converted to the cause of Christ. If you look at the New Testament, those three things are all worked out, and that's what biblical conversion, this is what it means to be saved. This is what it means to be a Christian, that you are converted first to Jesus, the person of Jesus, you are converted to loving His church, and you are converted to His cause in the world, which is to, to see people saved and come to knowledge of Him. And I want to put it to you as lovingly as I can, that if any one of those three is deficient in our lives, we are not living out authentic biblical Christianity. You cannot love Christ without passionately loving His church. It's impossible. (laughs) You can't love Jesus without taking the same message that's touched your life and transformed your life and boldly declaring it to your friends and your family so they can enjoy the same freedom. That's what it means to be a Christian. I know that there's some that say they love Jesus, but they're not, not part of local churches. Well, I would answer that I think part of that is that our cultures begin to squeeze us into its, into its um, shape rather than us have the opposite effect. And so there's certain things that become increasingly dazzling to people rather than lo- loving the local church. Uh, I saw Screwtape screw the other day with Helen. Um, we, we went into London to see the Screwtape letters, and I was struck by one of the things that C.S. Lewis says through the character of Screwtape. He says this, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, which is soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without any signposts. Isn't that how it is, really, in our lives? There's a slow slide that just comes, and suddenly we find out we are a long way from when we started. So for me, the true family of God is a community that knows that we are saved by grace but it's also a loving community that takes care of and shows a responsibility in encouraging every son and daughter in God's house. Yes, every son and daughter. And so I see it like this, that a true family, a true community of believers, like Jesus did, He gathered people to Himself, He taught them, He encouraged them, He refreshed them, and then He sent them out. So there's this thing of gathering, discipling, and scattering. That's part of authentic community, that we would give ourselves to the same, gathering people and trusting people getting to get saved, discipling people and sending people out into the world. And so I could put it like this, being a member of a local church is a sign affirming that you are saved. It doesn't save you any more than works do, but joining a church family, committing to a church family certainly is a sign that you are indeed saved, that you know Jesus. And so you know, Jesus over and over in the Gospels encourages us that if we love Him, we would obey Him. If we obey Him, we remain in His love. He uses language like that. He says if we are, fr- we are His friends, if we do what he, he says we should do. And He says we'll we be blessed if we do what He says we should do. And so a part of becoming a, a member of a local church, and I said this last week, let me just reiterate it again, is opening your heart and saying to other people, I want you to get to know me, and I want to get to know you. And as I said last week, I want to say it again. That is an incredibly vulnerable thing to do. That's an incredibly brave thing to do, to open your heart to other people and say, I actually want you to get to know me, and I want you to get to know me. Yeah? It requires courage. It requires amazing, uh, yes, courage to do that. And so I want, to, I want to implore you as God's children, as my friends, that when someone opens their heart to you in the local church, that you treat them with kindness and you treat them with love and you treat them with grace. And you treat them with generosity. Why? Because it's an incredibly terrifying thing to do to actually open your heart to someone else and say, I'm going to let you see all the things inside of me that I don't like about myself, that I'm embarrassed about, that actually I find difficult, and I want you to come and speak into my life and help me. That is incredibly brave to do that. So when someone does that with you, treat them with kindness and generosity and stand with them. Don't make judgments. Do I always get that right? No. But I'm learning. <laughs> I hope I'm better at it today than I was 10 years ago. I really do. And I want to encourage you as well. As you meet in home groups, as you meet with each other during the week and people begin to open their hearts to you, treat people with kindness. You see, um, one John 4:20 puts it like this: "If anyone says I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar." For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so there is this real sense of joining hands, opening hearts, so that we can be known by other people. And we can't live the Christian life on our own. And I wrote something there. I said, um, if you you resist joining a church family, it's really saying like you want to uh, sail your own little boat in your own little way and not really join what God is doing. That's really what it is. It's And I put it to you that it is individualism in our society that is squeezing us into its mold rather than us embracing what the Scripture says and being determined to live that out. I've seen this too many times, people picking and choosing between churches or just listening to online sermons of their favorite Internet preachers, only attending when they like the music or they like the preaching. I want to put it to you. That's our individualistic, consumeristic, baby boomer culture just saying, I'm going to get all that I can out of this thing rather than seeing what we can put into it and how we can open our hearts to others. Let me quote Screwtape Screwtape again. I didn't actually um, put this up. But this is what Screwtape says to the demon that he's trying to uh, disciple. He says this, Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of going to church— The next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for a church that suits him until he becomes a taster, until he becomes a connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy, that is God, wants him to be a pupil. It's brilliant, isn't it? That's what he's saying. He's saying all of us, we can have these tendencies... To kind of pick and choose what we like. Really, at the end of the day, we stop becoming pupils of the Holy Spirit and we determine, we say we know best about everything and we're going to live it out as we choose. And I want to finish by saying that I'm convinced, and I, I want to encourage you over the next couple of weeks, that for me, being a member of a local church is not an add on to, the, to be, being members of God's universal church. If we feel like it, we add it on. Rather, it's testimony. It's evidence of our membership of God's universal church, is that we belong to a local church and work it out. And I have to be honest with you. I've been frustrated with church at many points in my life. But I want to encourage you with this. Remember this. When you join a church family, you are not being included for what you do. You're not being included in God's family for the function that you perform. You are being included as a son or a daughter into a family. Do you get what I'm saying? It's completely different. And ultimately what brings brings glory to God in the fullness of, of all that He's doing are our relationships, the fact that we can work it out, the fact that we can work through our differences, the fact that we can include people from different cultures and age groups and all get on together, that is what brings glory to God, ultimately at the end of the day, is that we don't all have to be the same and cookie cutter because God so loved the world that He sent His Son that whoever believes in Him might not die but have eternal life. Are you with me? And so, I want to finish with that. Ultimately, at the end of the day, our relationships are what brings glory to God. So I want to ask you, at the beginning of this year, and this is not a with any sense of manipulation or anything like that, I want to ask you to consider how you see being a member of this local church. And I want to ask you, as sons and daughters in this house, can this local church depend on you? Can this local church depend on you to join hands with each other as part of this family will you choose to open your heart as difficult as that is as as much as courageous as th- that might be in terms of what that demands from us as individuals will you open your heart to other people i'm not saying to everyone to the right people open your heart to the right people can this church increasingly depend on all of us to love to pray to serve to give sacrificially, to own the vision. Why? Because ultimately you want to see many saved and come to Christ, rooted in Him, planted in Him, so that they can be fruitful through their lives. And so I want to ask you as we, we, as we um, think over these things in the next couple of weeks, as we, as we reflect on them in our life groups, as hopefully that you will talk around them over the dinner table. Would you let God do something deeper in your heart this year, for, ultimately for Him, but also for His bride, that His bride can flourish in every way. And that really, I, 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 with honesty, can say that is my prayer for every single church in this community, that churches will be filled with people that love God and passionately love each other and give themselves to building communities that reflect something of the gospel and the good news that we have to take to the world. Amen? And so I want to ask you that you would affirm these things in your heart. I can't force you to do that. I'm asking you to do that. I'm asking you to consider what I'm saying, to reflect on what I'm saying, to know where you stand in history, to be aware of the attitudes that influence your life, just as I'm trying to be aware of the attitudes that I've absorbed from culture that influence my life. We don't give in to those things, but we let the gospel inform our lives, and we live it out as best as we can. to to kick something of the darkness, to dispel something of the darkness, to be light and salt into our communities and our nations that God has called us to be part of. Amen. Can I pray for you? And then I'm going to ask if you can just lead us in a song to finish, and then we're going to enjoy each other, all right? We're going to enjoy coffee and enjoy each other. If you need prayer, we have a prayer team that's going to be here afterwards. And We'd love to pray for you if you need prayer for healing or just some situation that you'd love people to encourage you with. Uh, We've got a prayer team that's going to pray with you afterwards, yeah? Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your church. We want to thank you for your beautiful bride. We want to thank you, Lord, right now that all over this community, uh, at St. Paul's, At the Vineyard, at City Church down the road, at Home Church up at the university, there are communities of believers that love you with all of their hearts and love each other. And God, I thank you for that. And I want to speak your blessing over every single church that preaches the good news of Jesus. Thank you for every single community. And God, I pray that you'd help us to love your bride, even when there are things that that we find frustrating about your bride. I pray, Lord, that we would love your bride as you have loved your bride. I pray, Lord, that you'd give us grace to love each other and you'd help us to be those that treat each other with kindness because you have treated us with kindness. I pray, Lord, that we would extend the same comfort that we have received from you you to others, that people might know something of the kingdom through us. And so I just pray, Lord, for, for our church. I pray for every Uh, believer that's been part of this church for many, many years, those that you are joining, I want to say thank you for each and every one. And God, we want to see your kingdom come. We want to see a greater and deeper measure of your spirit moving this year. And I pray that you would give us grace and wisdom as we seek to do that. We want to bless you, Lord, this morning. Thank you for all that you're doing. And I pray as we worship now, as we stand, that you'd seal these things in our hearts, a love for you, a love for each other, that we might see your kingdom come.